Blog Talk Radio. everyone and welcome to Ammo Art Chat. Um, my name is Linda Fischler and tonight we have two great artists with us. We have Kevin McPherson and C.W. Mundy and we're going to be talking about how to keep our paintings fresh and how to stay inspired and uh, all that good stuff. How um, Kevin and C.W. learn from um, basically you know, exploring and um, different techniques that they explore, different travels that they do. Uh, they'll probably even get into some great painting stories for us at the end, and um, so we hope you, you hang around for that. It'll be a really interesting show for everyone. Um, one of the things I wanted to mention this evening was just to remind our AMO members that we have a painting challenge going on, and it's kind of a tell us your story through your self-portrait, and uh, there's more information on the site for that at www.amopaintingchallenge.com, so be sure to check that out. And the due date on that challenge is October 31st. So make sure you um, get your entries in and tell us all about you. Not only can you enter your painting, but there's a comment area at the bottom where you can tell us a little bit about yourself and, and why you chose to represent yourself the way you did with your portrait. And, again, this is a painting challenge, and we know portraits, especially a self-portrait, is challenging. But let's get out of the comfort zone and, and really stretch ourselves on this one. So uh, we hope you'll you'll take part in that, and we look forward to seeing your work. So we have got, like I said, we've got Kevin and CW with us tonight, and we're going to be probably talking at length with them a lot more. So we're going to jump right into getting the show started. I want to introduce my two co-hosts that are with me tonight. Um, Blanche McAllister Harris is with us, and so is Barbara Coleman. So Blanche, how are you this evening? Oh, I'm doing well, and how about you? I'm doing really well. Um, I'm just going to jump right on over to Barbara because I want to get to Kevin and and to CW because we've got a lot to cover this evening. So, Barbara, how are you tonight? I'm doing great. It's it's exciting to have this show, and um, I've just been painting a lot, enjoying the weather, and almost out every day doing plein air. So, Kevin, I want you to know that. But one thing I did forget to mention, which I had promised all over Facebook, and I think I even mentioned it on the newsletter that went out, I do want to mention that our November 15th show is with David LaFell. So I know I, I've been talking to my two co-hosts about this, and we're all very excited to have David join us. And, uh, and actually, when I told him that Kevin and CW was on this show, they were real excited about that, too, as, as I am. And so what I want to do and is welcome back at this time CW, CW, you've been on a show with us before, so welcome back to MLR Chat. Thank you. It's uh, it's an honor to be here uh, with uh, you and Blanche and Barbara and Linda, and also, too, uh, it's so exciting getting to do this uh, live show with Kevin. Uh, I just have the highest regard and respect for what he's done in his career, and uh Know him well as a friend, and uh, just grateful to be able to do a show with him. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I had to twist his arm, I think. Right, Kevin? What was a little show, bit. Kevin? Yeah, a little a bit. A little bit. I thought, I, I thought I'd have my own show, but I have to share it with my friend, C.W. 
you won't yeah, well. get quite as much time. But CW okay. also, we've had lots of conversations together, and CW is one of those inspiring artists that always highlight other artists also, which I think is a really nice attribute. And both CW and I, I think we approach life and our painting with a sense of humor, which I think um, when we have our further conversations about keeping it fresh, I think that's always a good thing to keep in mind, to um, approach it with a little bit of playfulness. Oh, so definitely. Thank, thanks, yeah, thanks, CW, for joining us on this one. We appreciate your time. Yeah, it's great to be a, a part of it, you guys. Yeah. So I'm going to throw this over to Blanche for the first question. Okay. Um, well, the first question, I'd like for both Kevin and CW to answer this. Uh, Kevin first. Sometimes we artists might find ourselves so hung up on trying to produce the perfect masterpiece that we forget to get out of our comfort zone and explore. Um, recently, I know you both have been doing that, uh, or, or you've been exploring. Kevin, I know back from being a protege student, we heard a lot about your explorations in China. Can you tell us a little bit about your fascination with that and how you're using that to challenge and explore? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. It kind of sounds like the presidential uh, debates. Good question. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the CW will get the re he'll get the rebuttal. But yeah. um, pretty much my whole career and my whole life, I've been um, struck with wanderlust and love of travel. And I've traveled um, in probably 50 different countries, always taking my paints with me. And surprisingly enough, Asia was never on my radar until about five years ago, Jason Situ, a wonderful artist from China who now lives in America, invited myself, Wanda, and three other artists to go to Guangzhou, China, and work with the Kaiping Museum and about 50 different artists, uh, professionals, and amateur artists to come watch us paint. And it was a whirlwind tour in a sense. It was about eight days. And we landed at six in the morning, and we didn't stop until we took off eight days later. And we painted, and they watched us, and it, it was really quite exciting. We, I felt like I was Britney Spears or something. We had this entourage around us, <laughs> taking photos, signing autographs. They treated us wow. so, so special. And it was um, in those eight days pretty exhausting, pretty exciting. I didn't learn a word of Chinese, but it really inspired me to want to come back. And then a year later, another artist friend of mine, David uh, David Liu from California, another great artist who has worked with Disney and he's actually animated, um, he's doing an animated movie over in China now and he's written some children's books, really fun guy. We took 18 of my students over there, and Wanda and I, we spent about three weeks, and we traveled many different places in China. And we went as landscape painters, and I tell you, by the time I came back, I was inspired to paint portraits. I really enjoyed the people I met over there, the interesting faces, the culture. It just really shifted my gears. And the last day in Shanghai, I met a group of language teachers. 
I asked them, if I come back, would you teach me Chinese? And they said yes, so we kept in contact. So I went to Shanghai by myself. I didn't know a person, didn't know a word of Chinese, and I decided um, to set up and just do portraits. So I spent a month in Shanghai, set up a great little studio there, and every day I would meet people and have them pose for me. And the best well of models came from the massage parlor. So once I went there, I was sitting getting my foot massage for an hour and 45 minutes, so I decided I might as well bring my sketchbook. And so I gave one of the gals a, a little portrait that I did while they were doing my feet. And then from there, I ended up painting their portraits. And I would paint one gal, and then she would show on her iPad or iPhone uh, the portrait I did, and the other gal wanted her portrait done. And so pretty much I had... Over the month, I ended up painting most of the girls in the massage parlor. So it was a terrific experience, and then it just inspired me to continue learning Chinese, learning to write Chinese, and and calligraphy is something I've always enjoyed, and I want to insert a lot more of that feeling into my painting itself. So it really just shifted my gears, and so the last couple of years, I've just been uh, focusing on portraits, which is different. I've been a landscape painting, painter the last 30 years, and it's a total new challenge, and I find it as reinvigorating and and inspiring as when I was just out of college or just starting plein air painting. So I think finding something new, something that is your own reason to do it, is probably the most important fuel to keep you inspired. Mhm. And and keeping open to to finding it, to trying new things. Well, de- well definitely. And even when I was in Shanghai, every day I would go out and I would literally walk for 8 hours, 5 hours at a time, just going down all the different alleys and I would take my camera and I would meet people and practice my language and uh-huh. I would one day I would just look up and see all the laundry hanging down and the wires twisted above and just seeing different things, different points of perspective and uh-huh. not having any expectations. One of the good things about going over there, not knowing anybody, not having them know what I do, painting portraits that's out of my comfort zone and not even having expectations of how good that product should be when I'm done took a lot of pressure off me to just really enjoying the process. And I think a lot of people, when they start painting, they're so enthused, and they might be really awful. You know, they might not have any of the skills, but they're really <laughs> passionate. And, yeah. you know, they don't know better sometimes, and that's a yeah, great they just place to be. And sometimes when we when we have the expectations and have the knowledge or, or we're more aware of, the lack of knowledge that we have, um, it puts you know, it puts other strains on us to be creative. So finding whatever it is, you know, we have to find that balance of intuition and creativity and curiosity and also find the balance of having the foundational basics and skills necessary to communicate what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. So so it put me on a new path and I'm really excited. That's exciting. That's great to hear. Um, you're really leaving yourself open to explore things. 
CW, yeah. it's your turn for the rebuttal. <laughs> well, I'm kind of upset because Kevin went way over the two minutes allotted. So <laughs> you got the timer out. Well, here's your uh, question. Nobody's going to vote for me. Uh, uh, well, well re- I've... Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, you recently posted a couple of paintings where you started out with black and white underpainting and then use color glazing to get the effect you were searching for. Can you tell us a little bit about that adventure? Well, yeah, that's such a long time back. I'm on to something totally different right now. (laughs) But uh, basically, I just thought it would be a good idea to... uh, uh, My whole thing... A lot like what Kevin is is it's about the journey, the search, and and uh, you know I've said before I just want to see what I can get away with, and uh, so I I thought it conjured up the idea. I thought it'd be a neat idea to paint it in black and white. In fact, the guy made a great comment about his career. He said I'd paint everything in black and white if I didn't have to make a living, and so uh, you know I. Uh, I decided to paint uh, these large paintings, uh, 24 by 36, 30 by 40, uh, do it in a black and white, uh, and then start using the effect of color and glazes. I wanted the pieces to be very tonal uh, anyway, and so I thought that was a good way to start and then experiment. You let that paint dry, and then you can put the glazes on, and I'm not talking about a blanket glaze uh, where you just mix up a a value, a, a color value with liquid and lay it over the whole thing. I'm talking about uh, using liquid uh, with different colors and uh, actually glazing it right over that value. And since the glazing is transparent, the value will pretty much hold its, hold its own. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just, uh, you know, something that I've wanted to do. And and I did uh, four or five of those pieces, and uh, and now I'm on to something totally different. It uh, it takes a lot to keep my attention span, so I'm usually uh, I work through something, and and then when uh, when the thrill is gone, as BB King says. Uh, I'm off on something else. <laughs> oh, that's great. And right now I'm uh, open. Right now I'm uh, doing something that I haven't done in my fine art career, uh, with the exception of the toy romanticism collection. I'm I'm sort of back to that, where I'll, uh, I posted uh, two piece or no one piece on uh, on Facebook. And it's my toy cars, and I've uh, hooked them up with a brass brass pot and a copper pot and using those as foils in the backdrop uh, to paint with. And uh, so what what I'm doing is uh, actually painting the one object fairly realistic, pretty realistic, but still dealing with the edges, and then uh, painting the rest of the with the concept of having a primary, uh, being a, a car, 
and then uh, then painting the vases as a secondary and the backgrounds as a tertiary to try to get a primary, secondary, and a tertiary and a a focus uh, and a centrality, a focus, a focus. And uh, so that's what I'm, I just worked on today. Uh, one that uh, I've got 16 hours in and. And I've got a problem with the last car I painted. I'm going to have to solve that. I think I may scrape it off and put something else in because it's it's not working. The rest of the painting looks really great, and then that part's not not really happening. But, you know, that's kind of the fun thing about it is, you know, like Kevin said, go for it and, uh, and see what you can get away with. And uh, so that's what I'm doing right now. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, we all need to take the pressure off of ourselves and uh, explore a little bit more. I think that's the, for me, that's the whole purpose in doing art. It's that it's the journey. It's the exploration. Uh, I I can't speak for Kevin, but I can speak for myself. I know I uh, I have to be really engrossed in the process and really have the passion to do it, or I'm dead in the water. So that that whole exploratory thing is what is the driving force for me to continue to create is to try something different. And I'm so excited what Kevin's been doing with uh, the the portrait and the figure because you know he's known as one of the top premier uh, plein air landscape painters in the country, and uh, and now he's on this quest with uh, with the head and uh, the figure. And uh, we were just in Taos uh, a month ago, and uh, I got we got Rebecca and I got to hang with Kevin and Wanda, got to go to his studio, and I was just blown away at the progress that he's made, uh, you know, with the uh, figure and the head. You know, I think I've said this before, but you know, plain air painting is one thing, and uh, uh, I think it's why it's probably one of the biggest things going is because uh, you really don't have to have the ability to draw great, uh, you know, to, to to do plain air. But when you get into the things that Kevin's getting into, uh, then the drawing skills are absolutely paramount. Uh, to do the head is the hardest thing to do, probably in all art, and the figure second, and the still life third. And the landscape would be probably fourth on the list. Yeah, I think it's always intimidating for uh, us landscape painters to uh, try to do portraits. Something you haven't done if you haven't done it before. Well, and the thing right. that I love about what Kevin is doing is his are very poetic, and he's still staying within that pre- impressionistic uh, uh, style. But it's very hard, really hard, to do them. Impressionistic and still hold the form together and make it look beautiful instead of a, you know, like a car wreck. <laughs> when D.W. Uh, was out in Taos, um, he was teaching a workshop at the Fashion Institute, and Carolyn Anderson was teaching a workshop which I took part of as a student, and she mm-hmm. is a terrific painter that both uh, C.W. and I admire greatly, and she does have this wonderful impressionistic approach however she still understands and 
accepts the sense of form within it and and it does come down to the drawing and, and it makes you as a landscape painter i think um the really good landscape painters do have that good foundation and good sense of draftsmanship underneath stuff but it is something that people can get away with a lot of say faulty skills so anytime if you're practicing doing heads or architecture it's going to improve your landscape painting definitely and then on a different note both cw and i came from an illustration background and that's not only a good foundation because we have intense training and intense deadlines to do jobs and you're only as good as the last job you've just completed but we both took a um, big risk um, from our illustration career that we built up and made successful and it takes a long time to develop a good clientele list and you know make some decent living with that but both of us we met years ago we were actually taking a class with Dan Gearhart's both of who we both admire greatly as a great inspiration to many artists and we both took the chance to leave the illustration market which is still a somewhat of a risky endeavor um doing freelance illustration but jumping off from that after a career was built and going into fine art was um another risk that we both have taken but it that too kind of keeps things fresh so getting out of our comfort zone painting a different subject or you know going from illustration to fine art is mm-hmm. going to be risk mm-hmm. but i think that's where where most of the good artists that we know we we like living on that edge and i think cw and i have talked about you know living in that uncomfortable place yeah, it keeps your work fresh. And it keeps, well, you yeah, know, something, not only your something work, I'd but like it keeps your yeah. Uh, yeah. Say about uh, Kevin is when uh, we took that workshop uh, at the Fashion Institute with Gerhardt's, uh, Kevin and Wanda invited Rebecca and myself to come over uh, and to see his studio. When I went over to his studio, the first thing that I saw was uh, I think it was 500 five by sevens, and I just I was beside myself. I couldn't believe it, and I that's when I knew. I said, "This guy did 500 five by sevens." I said, "He's going to be uh, one of the hardest to deal with in this market because of the hard work ethic uh, that I was so excited to see that." that he uh, was participating in, and that's really what it takes. Uh, Donald Putman told me a long time ago when I studied it from with him, he's one of the finest painting instructors to ever teach uh, at Art Center uh, in Pasadena, and he told me, he said, C.W., it's my you. And uh, those are the... the uh, the two hallmarks of a seasoned painter. Yeah. yeah, last year I was in Kevin's uh, protege class, and we learned that early on uh, uh, a lot of work ethic and discipline. Discipline really pays yeah, off. That's what it takes. Oh yeah, that's what it takes. Yeah. Barbara, you have a question for Kevin? I do. 
Um, I have a question about your palette, Kevin. Um, like most of us, it's blue, yellow, red, and grays, and white. Um, do you use different limited palettes to challenge yourself or, or to change up the whole process? Uh, yes, I do, Barbara, and it's good to talk to you. As another one of my students that we've worked with many, many years together, and Barbara is doing some terrific paintings, um, award-winning paintings lately, too, I noticed. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Worked hard think, with you. I think we're getting a, an echo. I don't know if that's coming through everybody. Yeah, I'm doing that. Yeah. But to answer your question about my palettes, I've um, pretty much my whole career, when I started in college, um, until I met Wanda, I had no money for food, and she gave me her meal card. So that was lucky. And <laughs> But for my art supplies, I literally went to the grocery store and I bought food coloring. And it came in red, yellow, blue, and green. And it was 29 cents for the little food coloring compared to the fancy watercolor. So I did most of my assignments in food oh, wow. coloring. And I actually did some of my um, first fine art paintings in food coloring, one of which I sold Wanda's uncle for $100 of a Native American portrait. And... Um, after a year of him hanging it in the um, sunlit dining room, it disappeared. And <laughs> so he wanted his money back. I said, what do you want for $100, you know? So anyway, <laughs> that kind of um, trained me to work with a very limited palette. And I, I did work um, as I went out plein air painting uh, early in my career with, you know, a dozen or 20 colors. But I found that, Reducing it down to three, red, yellow, and blue, was the most effective way to control my color temperature and my values. And using three colors sounds very limiting, but it's really very liberating. Um, it makes your choices, um, shifting temperature this way or that way, and the values much easier. And with all the race of time when you're painting in plain air or you know judging color quickly I find it to be very effective however in recent years um, I started using a lot of different uh, palettes also one of the things I do with my students often is creating a grab bag palette I actually put together three color combinations that are very odd and I make the students work with these odd three colors and it's amazing how much it teaches you about proper color relationships because no matter how many colors we use we'll still not be able to match some of the intensities of nature but that's not what we are really after we're really after matching color relationships, value relationships. So no matter how few colors we have, we're still dealing with the reddest color, yellowest color, greenest, and bluest, and we have to make the colors work within that parameter. So I, I find it really exciting now when I paint the landscape or if I paint a portrait, I will use um, 
perhaps black, yellow ochre, and cadmium red. Um, that's kind of what Zorn did so effectively. I will use orange, purple, and green, which is shifting away from the pure primaries one step away. And that's a wonderful palette. And then I use a lot of complementary palettes, um, orange and blue, green and red. And I'll shift those. You can have like a yellow on You have an orange-blue palette. There could be a, a very cadmium yellow deep, perhaps, as your yellowest color. Um, or reducing one of the primaries just makes for a more harmonious um, painting overall. So anytime you shift your palette, it will throw a new wrench into what you're doing and make it exciting again. And I think that's what we're always after, always after discovery, keeping it, your curiosity up, what will happen, what if I do this. So every day if you switch your palette, you may end up with um, some surprising results. So I would suggest that highly. Well, I remember, Kevin, in, in one of the first times I worked with you and we were in Walt Gomsky's garden, and you gave us one of those grab bag palettes, and we had three colors, and the, here we were painting these brilliant flowers and poppies and lilies and all this stuff, and I had these three very dull colors. <laughs> and I remember that was one of the, the biggest challenges. It just really felt like somebody shook up my head and turned around and put it on backwards because... I really saw what you were talking about, about matching value relationships and seeing color relationships. And it was it was an incredible exercise. And actually, to relate it to your work, um, you've always been a fantastic painter, but you used to use a lot of color that was always screaming. Everything was brightest red, brightest, brightest blue. And in you know the years of you working, you have now found a sensitivity where you don't have to be screaming the color all the time and still make a very strong statement. And I think you found a, a much better or a higher sophistication in your work because of that control. So definitely by using reserve in your color, you can have a very colorful painting still, and um, your work has shown that um, to a high degree lately. So good for you. Well, thank you. You've been guiding me that way, and I've fallen in love with grays. Great. CW? Yes. Um, your exploration into music, has it influenced your painting any? Uh, not really. Not that I know of. Uh in fact, I've done something uh, here lately in the last uh, month and a half that's very unusual for me. I don't paint with any music whatsoever. I don't want anything going on, no music, uh, because I could tend to wander off and get into the melody, get into the song. I don't want anything playing. I just uh, It's just the canvas, the paint myself and uh praying a lot and that's that's what I've been doing. I uh I really like that quietness right now and that's kinda unusual uh because I've never done that before. But 
I uh, uh, I think it uh, it works hand in hand with the painting because it's just another way of expressing uh, creativity. So uh, one of them starts and the other one is put aside, and then that one, then I do the music and the paintings put aside. I haven't found a way to be able to paint and play the banjo at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> that probably would be a uh, a bad money deal anyway. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, that's that's kind of that. Okay. Yeah, I noticed that one time when we were out at the weekend with the Masters, you had your banjo with you and you were playing before the, the workshop started. Uh-huh. Uh, sometimes I'll play uh, a song that I've written for the students uh, when I first meet the students. I just do different things all the time. And then sometimes I've actually uh, I've got a resophonic uh, banjo that's uh, got a sounds like a dobro and it's not quite as loud. And mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times uh, when I have teach my classes, when they're to be painting, then I just sit there and uh, play a bunch of songs and play background music uh, for the students. No, oh, okay. And then they tell me to quit. No. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, let me ask you a question. Um, painting in the same place, we become used to the subject and maybe miss the subtle nuances of change, uh, we can't see it as objectively. I know that you've painted Aspen Pond in Taos at least 500 times, and you continue to paint it today. Tell us about the inspiration you sought during the creation of Reflections on a Pond. Well, I've been living up in this neighborhood um, northeast of Taos, uh, about 50 miles out of Taos, for about 24 years now. When I first moved up here, um, I really got inspired by this little pond that's just right across the street from me. And I painted in all different compositions and different lighting situations. But when my friend Ray Vanella, who was a very dear friend and a mentor of mine, uh, was moving back into town because of some health reasons, he couldn't live at this altitude, I um, decided to buy his home because it had a direct view of this pond that I painted so often. And right from the start in 1996, I decided I'm going to paint this pond in every season. So I set up a little easel in front of my window and then painted a couple. And then I thought, you know, I'll paint a couple more and a couple more. And and it kind of just morphed into this concept of I, I need to paint this pond every day of the year in its different lighting situations and all the variety of seasons that we get up at this high, eleva- high elevation. So Wanda was um, letting me set up the easel in our dining room, which was very unlike her, but you know I, I was not so messy, and then we just kept the easel right in front of the window and that gave me the opportunity to paint this at any moment's time because you know when you don't have a setup you say oh I should I should go out there and paint it or I even should get my camera but when the easel is right out there in front 
it made it accessible to do it all times a day and, and at a spur of the moment. So um, this was a project I did totally for myself. I know if I painted this scene with a gallery kind of breathing down my back saying, are you done yet? Are you done yet? And it literally took me five years to complete one day every day of the year. Some days I would paint it and I would fail miserably. And so the next year on October 18th, I would come back and I would paint it again. And I might fail again and then I'd do it the third year. So it took me five years. But what it... Wow. activities and so it, it was done for myself I didn't have a deadline and truly for myself which made it um, I think one of the most purest things that I've done in my art career so then after that it took me about four years to compile all my journal notes all the paintings all the photographs and uh, write about the project and so it taught me a lot about how one scene, we can see it very differently if we really observe. And so many of us, especially aspiring artists, really don't look carefully enough, and you end up repeating formulas and doing the same thing over and over. So I've seen many artists who are really successful and really competent, and they can go out and do a painting and get maybe, let's call it, one out of ten. They could get 7.5s, 8s, almost every time they paint. But they rarely get a 10, and they rarely get a 1 or a 2. And I think, you know, as an artist, we hope to get a 10 once in a while. So I think we have to do something and take some chances and make sure you don't do formulas. And I think um, C.W., as I admire him greatly, he, he has changed his subject matter, his, his technique. He continues to study with other people, as I do. And we continue to keep on searching, even though we have found places of success in our career. We have not necessarily, maybe because we're not smart enough, maybe we don't necessarily repeat that over and over again. But... You know, we have to find what the word success means for every one of us, and mm-hmm. and that's personal, and you can't really say one person is um, doing it right or wrong. It's, you know, that has to be individual. And whatever makes you feel like you're doing the right thing for yourself, I think, is the way to go. Well, if any of our listeners have not seen your book, Reflections on a Pond, uh, I would suggest they... Take a look at it. Get it. Uh, it's, it's just wonderful. I, I can get lost in that for several hours. It's amazing that uh, that you can see all those different things through the years in that one spot. Even for myself, when I look back at it, when I look at the book uh-huh. myself, or every day I'm looking at the pond as we're speaking, and you know I can look back at the book and say, October 18th, what did it look like? in 1998 yeah. or you know it's it's interesting and it brings me back to it and it is one of the projects that I have done that I I am very proud of that um I created this project for myself and fulfilled it so 
it's something I think every artist, you know, if you find some passionate thing to do, whatever that may be, that will fuel you, and you really will not have that artist block, or you won't have, you know, that feeling that, oh, what should I do next, or what does the gallery want me to do next? You know, you have to find that place for yourself. Yeah, well, that that was a well, wonderful yeah. project. Thank you. And, you know, Kevin, as a follow-up, I would just like to say to the listeners, they can only imagine what a wonderful experience it is to work with you as a teacher because not only do you emphasize just the foundations of painting, but also such an encouragement of, of each student's, you know, intuition, each student's creativity, and you said earlier, curiosity. It's just a real... Um, you as a teacher give people the confidence to to grow and to to challenge themselves to do new things and to just keep at it day after day. So it's exciting, and just to hear you speak like that about the pond um, reminds me of that. Well, thank you. And the um, artist mentors online, which you have been a part of, which Linda and I have both um, put together. It is a pleasure to work with the artists for 12 months you know that's kind of nice you know I've done workshops for the last 25 years and working with over thousand students but usually they're a week or 10 days at a time at the best but to be able to work with someone for a year you have that time to um, to work on different levels not only the basics but the emotional content and bringing out that uh, personal voice of each person so that's that's been a real nice opportunity, which I'm glad you were able to take a part of. Oh, absolutely. And to, and to learn to treasure your own voice is, is a real gift. And that's, and that's the most important thing that we all have to, have to find. And, and I would imagine CW, you know, and myself, you know, it's hard even at our level, you know, to feel comfortable with what we're doing. But, you know, that's our goal to say that, we have, you know, something valid to say. And, you know, the great artists that we admire, living and dead, were just human beings. And, you know, they had a, a voice that they believed in themselves, and, and and you do too. And so if you find what you want to communicate, find what you believe in, you will also find the skills necessary or you will seek out the skills necessary to maybe communicate that message. And that's what CW and I are trying to do now. We're still enjoying the process, finding what we want to say, what inspires us, and then finding the skills necessary to say it. So if I study with CW or Carolyn Anderson or Joe Wang or Weihan Lu to better learn how to understand the structure and painting of a head and the emotional content of a figure, you know, maybe I'll be able to communicate something worthy. So finding your own voice is the most important thing any artist can do. And CW, when you travel to new destinations, um, you do travel a lot. Do you use that to, to kick in your inspiration as well, just to be in new places um, and see deeply into those places? Well, that's one of the, I think, the pure joys of 
this uh, occupation uh, is that ability to be able to travel. You know, this was one of the things when I was much younger. In my uh, early 20s, I uh, always thought it would really be a wonderful thing to be able to travel, but I, you know, I didn't have a career and didn't have a real good way of making money, and so that really wasn't something that I was able to, to do. But uh, because of the career, uh, it's taken my wife Rebecca and myself just a a multitude of places. And in fact, we were just talking uh, yesterday about. Uh, some of the journeys that we've been on, and and it's uh, when we we Kevin and I talked about this many years ago, back in '95, about starting an estate collection and keeping uh, one or two of the best paintings out of each series that we uh, would produce, and then not give that to the gallery, but keep it. And uh, Rebecca and myself can walk around our house in every room and we can see a painting from Vienna, a painting from Prague, a painting from uh uh Bratislava, a painting from uh from France, a painting from England, a painting from Italy, a painting from Spain, you know, a painting from Gloucester, you name it. Uh it's really uh neat. That's one of the real blessings that we didn't know that that we would have these paintings that we would be able to to look at and and be able to join them, uh, enjoy them, and then and then go through the whole process of what it was like when we were there. So uh, it it is very inspiring to get to go uh, to places, and I'm really grateful for that. And uh, it is uh, it is always exciting getting to go to some place that you've never been before. And uh, to see what translates and, and what you want to paint, and uh, I'm I'm really grateful for that. I I don't take it for granted. I'm just uh, just so grateful that you know that we've had this ability to be able to travel in our adult later adult lives, and it's just been really uh, really been uh, wonderful, and it is very inspiring too. Barbara, you have a follow-up or anything that um, you wanted to ask Kevin or CW? Well, what I was thinking about is is not only when you're traveling and you're seeing those new places, but just to travel to foreign countries in itself can take you out of your comfort zone. So in a certain sense, you have a head start of, of you know getting yourself out of the way if you immerse yourself in that new place and um, are willing to be uncomfortable and challenged. Do you think that that also helps you paint better? Well, uh, I think the just the excitement about the subject matter uh, is, uh, I think, one of the things that's very exciting. And then the other thing is uh, when you're, uh, let's say you're at a, you're in an area and you're going to be painting there for a week, a uh, week and a half. Well, you you know drive around and 
you start seeing the places that translate, and then you start making mental notes. Sometimes I actually write them down and say, well, this is a, I need to be back here at 3.30 uh, tomorrow if the sun's good, and this is a 3.30 painting, you know, and then this is, this is a 5.30 or 7 o'clock painting in the evening, or this is, a, you know, the light's right at 9 o'clock uh, in the morning, and so you, you know, that's kind of the, the neat thing that once you're there, you can start figuring out uh, what's translating and at what particular time, uh, so then that you can kind of uh, uh, have these slots figured out. Because I think one of the things that's that's not is when you have to uh, you have to go out and you have to keep looking and have to keep looking and you don't find anything exciting, and that's wonderful things about uh painting in uh in Europe is you know about every place you turn it's going to be uh a wonderful place uh you know to paint and and you don't really have to worry about that but that can be frustrating as uh going on a safari to find uh something that that's going to translate and 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 not be able to do that. So that really didn't answer your question, but uh, that is something I think that's important uh, that plain air painters uh, need to realize that you can really take advantage when you're driving around and log down uh, when when the light's right for that particular time of day for that subject, and then that helps you uh uh, be more uh, frugal and uh, get more done when you're out painting on uh, on a painting trip. Yeah, that's a wonderful insight of how to approach it, um, and to, and to even say, yeah, this this place is best in this light, and I come back for it. That's, I actually yeah, because sometimes you're driving and going, oh, darn it, I wish I could be painting here, you know, because <laughs> this is just gorgeous, and I'm you know, I, you're leaving, going back from lunch to where you're, uh, where you thought you were going to paint, and then you see this light, and you go, "Oh no, this is where I need to be." And you park and you get out the equipment and uh, have at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's exciting. It, it reminds me a little bit of some advice. Yes. Um, do me a favor. I know that this is the first time that you're using your headset and I've been playing around back here and I think that's where we're getting the echo. Okay. Okay. We can now start talking to me. <laughs> Barbara? Not Ben. Not Ben. No, it's still it's still messing up. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, that's fine. No, that's fine. Okay. okay. Did you have a follow-up? Something you wanted to say? Oh, I was just going to say that um, his advice about scouting out locations and if you're there for a week and, and choosing the right place at the right light just reminded me of an anecdote that um, I'd heard from uh, another painter years back about going into the museum. And rather than just 
getting overwhelmed with all the art, you know, and then you're missing that one painting you really wanted to study, but you're too tired at the end of the day to see it. He said, just walk through this area and scout out every single room quickly in, the, in one wing and then go back to the pieces you want to spend time with. I right. think that's an excellent piece of advice um, for anybody going to a museum. It's um, yeah. overwhelming to see all the pieces, and sometimes you're at, you know, you're in Amsterdam at the Rijksmuseum, and you want to see it all. And but when we get overloaded, we really can't appreciate um, it all. So it's it's best if you go in there with maybe saying, I want to see, as you say, scout out the few pieces you want to see really intimately. And then also just kind of approach the the day that you're going into the museum and say, today I'm just going to concentrate on color relationships or value arrangements or composition or look at the um, diagonal lines that run through the, the master paintings or something. So if we don't have everything, we're trying to see it all, see all the paintings and all the facets that make up a good painting, maybe we can learn a little bit at a time uh, more effectively than trying to get it all in at once. So definitely that's a good way to approach it just as finding the locations, as C.W. said. Yeah. Yeah, I had never thought about that. That's a great idea to go through a museum. It just gets overwhelming, and you really, if you don't think about it, you really not see much of anything when you're trying to look at everything. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, when I to... go to, oh, go ahead. when I go to the museums, I my sort of rule of thumb is uh, I usually go for the rooms that I think that are are going to have uh, inventory that I want to look at, and then and then I just kind of like respond to the paintings uh, and 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 see what I think is amazing about what's working and 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 just look over the paintings and uh when when I, Rebecca and I were at the at the Met uh I think it was last summer uh we were looking at uh the new painting that they had of Rembrandt that's never been in the United States the self portrait that's a large painting large square painting, and I was looking at uh, a Rembrandt's work, and I was looking at some of the other artists during that time, and and I noticed it seemed like to me the thing that I got out of that that I was real excited about, it looked like that they had painted in the face with a, uh, a warm gray-green value relationship for the entire head, and then what they did is they came back in and uh, and added uh, some some flesh tones, some reds and some warm, some pinks, some gray pinks, some gray reds, warm and cool, uh, and accented and put those different places where cartilage would be or next to a bone, where flesh would be next to a bone, and that sort of thing to take it out of the from looking like a cadaver to making it uh, come to life and uh, and actually have, uh, you know, blood uh, in there instead of being a cadaver. And I, I was talking with David uh, LaFell about that, 
And uh, he said the artists, he said, that's why, he said, C.W., that's why all the artists used to paint the heads back, uh, he said, pre-Rembrandt. And he was one of the first guys that that's actually started doing the, the to make it look like flesh, uh, to add the, the red tones in at the same time while he was doing the dirty gray greens. And I think that's a... Uh, a wonderful understanding because you know the problem with so many people that are painting heads uh you know they got the flesh and they got way too much red going uh uh and they don't have that reflective color and i think if you start out with a really nice muted tonal head uh and then you can add that life to it uh and and it's a you can do it at the same time like Rembrandt did. And uh, I have a painting that Gerhardt's did of called The Disciple, and it's got that same thing uh, going on. Zorn did that. Sargent did it. Uh, it's a... Uh, uh, people get way too happy with uh, making flesh red. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you you kind of let, let us into the next part of of our conversations, which we're going to be talking about um, learning. And one of the questions that we wanted to talk about was, and, and I know it's very, very hard for us to say, what is your favorite past master um, or one particular one? So I know you probably have many. So we were just going to ask each of you, C.W. and Kevin, to talk to us a little bit about the past masters that you study and, and who those who your favorites are? Well, for me, uh, when I when I left illustration and wanted to be, uh, wanted to do the fine art, then uh, I went back and started really looking uh, through all the books at uh, what history has said to be some of the greatest painters. Uh, of all time, and I just looked at all of them for all different reasons, uh, the landscapes, the the figurative uh, painters, the still life painters, uh, all the different schools, and uh, that was uh, the big inspiring thing for me to uh, to want to do fine art, that I told myself, I said, if I could come up with a uh, a turn-of-the-century look in uh, fine art uh, that I could launch my career in fine art, and that's what I really needed to do was to take from uh, the people that I admired and thought had a lot of stuff going and try to incorporate that in my work. And, uh, you know, it's everybody's got their own list uh but for me, uh, one of the I think one of the key things that was so inspirational was the revolution, revolutionary impressionist, and uh, them uh, coming up with the concept when when Monet painted Sunrise. He said, "I can't really." He was going to put in an exhibition. He said, "I can't really call it uh, uh, a painting of uh, sailboats at La Havre. I, I, I guess I'm just going to have to title it an impression." And that was the birth of Impressionism, and I, uh, Kevin and I are both Impressionists, and I think that's one of the things that was so exciting to me is 
this whole uh, this whole concept of getting an impression of a scene uh, and not and not detailing it to death or making it photorealistic, uh, but just doing an impression. And it uh, that's always been, I think, the the birth of my painting and the excitement. So I have a great love for all the impressionists. Uh, and uh, yet, recently, uh, when I was really trying to come to some more understanding about edges and who took the liberties with edges more than anybody in the history of art and the the astounding thing that I found out one of my favorite ones was really Rembrandt and the liberties that he took at making edges work where the subject matter is not really that way but he's doing a painting and he would take those liberties with edges and I that's probably been one of my biggest quests and one of the most exciting things that I like to do is the uh, uh, the adventures of what you can do with edges and how edges can really help you make a primary, a secondary, and a tertiary uh, thing happen in your composition. And one of the great ways to do that is the way that you will deal with edges because it's actually the way we see. We only have uh, like 12 to 14 percent uh, of what we're looking at is in focus, and the rest is out of focus. And so that's a logical for me. It's a logical way to paint. Uh, and so. You know, to list all of them, you know, I would leave a lot of people out, but I'm sure Kevin and I have probably a lot of the same uh, superstars that we love, and we love them all for different reasons. And I, that's the beauty of what art is. There's so many before us that have that have painted such beautiful, unbelievable work, and that's inspiring to myself, and I, and I know Kevin as well. Kevin, do you want to share some of yours? or? Sure, I'd be glad to. And it's interesting, um, a lot of what C.W. has said is very similar in the thinking and the development, how I, I have come to paint. Um, Monet, I would say, is probably my favorite artist and probably my, one of my favorite paintings of all time is his painting Wisteria. If you remember that painting, it's a quite a long painting, and it comes to almost a calligraphic uh, interpretation of the Wisteria plan across this large canvas. And I think it was painted a little later in his years when he was not seeing as well because of his cataracts. And it also became closer to what uh, Van Gogh described as what he envisioned painting to become is closer to music than um, actual representation. So I think that painting kind of combines all of that thought pattern. And for myself, I was very nearsighted. I am very nearsighted, and I didn't know it until I was about 10 until I got hit with a lot of baseballs. And <laughs> I, um, I think I see very similarly to Monet, and so I see in the same 
visual vocabulary as he does. And so that's why I was always um, uh, admired his work and still do. And as C.W. was saying, you know, there's a lot of artists, you know, there's so many artists that influence for different reasons. But Impressionism, obviously, is my first choice, the California Impressionists who kind of used a bit more of form and the visual reality of nature is seeing as as CW said, like we don't see so much in focus, but the camera kind of fools one and fools the non-sophisticated um, person to say that, oh, it looks like a photograph, that's a, a good painting. And so we, we do see very differently than a um, mechanism like a camera does, although a camera is a great tool. But I would say Monet um, and then Vermeer, who has a very different approach, is one of my favorite painters. Um, the Woman in Blue Reading a Letter is one of my favorite paintings. And then in recent years, in many years I've loved Fashion, but in recent years he's becoming more and more my favorite, not only because of um, the color, the composition, and the edges that CW talks about so much. He's a master, and I, I think Fashion is probably the best draftsman ever. I don't think um, when you look at his line work, his drawings, that anybody can touch him. I, I would be, um, it, it could be a good argument that I don't think anybody can touch his drawings. So the more and more I look at Fashion, um, he becomes conclusively more and more one of my favorites. Yeah, I was, I was you know, and I would like to say that uh, uh, about impressionism that uh, that I love uh, is the ability to express work in a poetic uh, way is the the wonderful, beautiful thing about impressionism that's so hard. Uh, the more literal you become with a painting, the less poetic it becomes, and the more, the more you close down the viewing audience because there's less room for interpretation. So the poetic, uh, uh, to me, is a thing that's uh, so intriguing. Uh, like Kevin said about uh, Monet and and Morisot and. Uh, 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 I've, although he really wasn't much of an impressionist, and he didn't consider himself one, but Degas I, uh, and I loved his work because of the draftsman element. And then uh, Kevin's pick up on uh, Fashion, uh, and I would have to agree with him. Uh, his his drawing abilities up there with uh, Rubens, and probably even better, and and Michelangelo and. Uh, 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 da Vinci and people like that. His uh, his his draftsmanship is just unbelievable, and then his ability to put the abstract with the realism, and and then know where to put the realistic and the more photorealistic aspect of the painting, and then and then support that by backing down the realism uh, is is really, I think, the challenge uh, for everybody uh, to be that type of director. I mean, he was uh, just 
brilliant, and that's why I'm so in love with uh, Carolyn Anderson's work. She's probably my favorite favorite figurative painter because her work is so poetic, and uh, and it's uh, she is the master at editing, and that's really what it takes somebody that really can. She only puts in the essentials and leaves out everything that's non-essential that you don't need. And and then in the same breath, uh, I have to say Sherry McGraw and even David uh, LaFell's ability, the draftsmanship, the drawing, their drawings. Uh, Sherry put out that book, The Language of uh, uh, Drawing, and it is, to me, one of the best things out there. Uh, and her ability and her the beauty of her uh, ability to, to to be a draftsman and the beauty of the line and the beauty of the form and this is a beautiful piece. She's one of the got to be one of the best uh, draftsmen out there today. Her her ability to draw is just so breathtaking and beautiful to look at. Oh yeah, I, I bought that book CW after our, our show when you talked about it so much. I thought I've, I've got to get that. It's a wonderful book. Oh, it really is. Yeah. And and the thing that so was so uh, such a a learning experience for me it was I thought that everything we had to measure everything and it's not about measuring it at all it's about understanding the shorthand of drawing which she teaches Sharon and I she's going to be teaching in Indianapolis and I'm going to be her assistant uh, coming up in uh, 2013 here next year sometime we're going to. Uh, do a, a class together, and I'm going to be her assistant. So I'm looking, wow. looking forward to that. And I told Kevin I thought that would be a uh, on his quest be a great thing for him to to take Sherry's uh, drawing class because those it's so important uh, to get the uh, uh, the essential. Uh, aspect of what that pose is, and uh, that's one of the great things that she really works on is, is you know, being able to get that and get that right off, right off the bat. And then once you've got that anchored, then you can just go ahead with your drawing. But if you don't have that form down uh, right off the bat. Uh, you know, then the line is really meaningless from that point on. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a perfect lead-in to our next question. Um, it's about about these workshops. We all know how important networking is for artists, and that's probably no different for the two of you. On our last show, we were talking with Sherry, and then in the other show with UCW, we discovered that uh, you and Kevin had taken workshops from Carolyn Anderson, Sherry, and some of the other past, uh, some of the other current masters. Um, tell us why you do this, and also how you approach going to a workshop, how you prepare, um, what it is you're trying to accomplish, so that we can prepare ourselves better for workshops. Uh, Kevin, you want to go first? Sure, sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, I think a lot of times when somebody like myself or CW walks into a workshop, um, the other students are quite surprised. They would say, oh, well, you're a professional. We're quite surprised you're 
taking a workshop, but as we spoke you know about most of what we are doing on this last hour, um, you know we're always trying to get to another level, increase our abilities and um, increase our ability for communication of what we are trying to do. So you know it's when you come in with a reputation, you know sometimes that puts um, a different amount of pressure or it could put a different amount of pressure. And I think everybody who works, who comes to a, a workshop, that first day, usually I always have them paint right from the start and get that bad painting and all the intimidation and the anxiety out of their system because, you know, they're they're thinking they're there to perform for the instructor or, or perform for the other students to kind of prove that they have worth. And so I think we have to let go of that. So go in there and say, I'm coming because I know this person has something to offer me, and I am going to accept everything that they are going to be telling me during this week, regardless if I agree or disagree, and just try it. You know, if we approach it that, oh, I don't agree with that approach, and, you know, I do it this way, or I'm used to this way, or my teacher before told me to do it this way, you know, why are we coming there? And and I have a lot of students come to my workshops wanting to prove themselves or um, even when I do critiques, you know, I, I try to be very honest and I try to be constructive and I offer, they're paying me, so I, I give it everything I, I can and I'm not there to um, make them feel bad or, or be mean to them. But sometimes they're they're trying to show off in a sense, and and they're not really listening, and they don't get the the bigger picture. So, um, if I'm taking a workshop from CW or Carolyn or Joe Wang or Weihan Lu or whoever it may be, I'm there because I know they have something to offer, and I'm willing to try it, try it their way, and let it simmer and incorporate into my own work. And if then if I disagree with it. I disagree totally, and um, that convicts my direction even that much more. Or, you know, I'll come back from a workshop sometimes and say, you know, that really, you know, didn't feel like it's the way I want to go. But that doesn't mean I didn't learn anything. I actually learned that, yeah, I really want to go this direction. This is really the path I want to go, regardless of their success or how they do it. And I think if we just go with that attitude that we're going to try everything they have, let it simmer, and then reflect on it, and then take what we like and leave what we don't. Debbie, I think I think that Sherry said you were just that type of student in her workshop. You really opened yourself up to learning, and then over the course of the week, you had uh, learned so much. The drawing workshop, I think. Well, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I think is really important, kind of back of what Kevin's saying, is there's a passage in Scripture that says, my perish for lack of vision. And uh, this is what an artist, no matter what level he is at, he's got to have a vision. You've got to have a an attitude, an idea about what, what you think you want to try to create. I mean, that's why we look at all the different 
artists, the brands that are out there, uh, and and we have to be honest with yourself. And you know, what is it? How do I? I've got a chance to create art. How do I want to create it? What 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 do I like? What you know? Uh, this is the wonderful thing about art. Everybody's different, and everybody's got. Uh, a different should have a different attitude about everything, and so you know you just have to be honest with yourself. You know what is it I think I want to accomplish, and then you just look at the art that's out there, and somebody's got to be producing something that's 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 sort of in the direction that you think that you might want to go, uh, and then uh, I I can remember. Uh, when I first took my first workshop uh, with uh, Dan Gerhardt, uh, I was selling in this gallery in Indianapolis and, and doing really well. I wasn't painting anything from life. I was uh, doing everything from photographs because that's what I did my whole illustration. You know, uh, Michael Jordan wasn't going to show up at my studio. I was a sports <laughs> illustrator, and so I had to paint everything from photographs. and. But when I saw the magazines and I saw Dan Gerhardt's work, and I can remember seeing Clyde Aspervigs, uh oh, there were a host of different artists that were out there, that, uh, and Scott Christensen's, uh, these uh, landscape and figurative painters, and I'm going, these guys know stuff that I don't know because it's obvious because I can't paint that well and I can't paint, uh, I, my, my stuff doesn't have that look. So I was smart enough, uh, even though that I was selling well and, and doing well in this, that I wanted to be a better artist. And so that's, I mean, that's why Kevin took uh, uh, Carolyn's class. That's why I took Carolyn's class. That's why I took Sherry's. That's why I took Scott's. And I took uh, Dan Garrett's workshop twice because there were... Uh, being very honest with myself that I didn't have the ability to author work uh, anywhere in the as good as that or 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 with that that kind of uh, uh quality and uh so you know I was just honest with myself and I you know I took the took the workshops and they've really uh, paid off and like this last one with Sherry has really paid off because it's made me aware of uh, how important it is to get that gesture, and if I can get the gesture of the landscape with the nice curves and the feelings uh, of the form, and get the gesture of a, a figure or the gesture of a still life or whatever, and get that uh, uh, really accurate, then I can take from that and destroy it. Uh, uh, loosen it up, do whatever I want to do in terms of painting, but it's really uh, uh, helped me with the importance of being able to 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 get, to get that that ability to draw the draftsmanship better. I think what's really great if you look at Zorn or look at Sargent or or Fashion especially too. These guys, their draftsmanship is masqueraded by just the beautiful way that they paint. You don't even, uh, you're not even, now, of course, as an artist at times, then we start really looking for the the draftsmanship qualities and stuff like that. But the work is so beautiful, uh, It's the draftsmanship is 
uh, is kind of an underlying thing, a very important underlying thing, but you don't really notice uh, uh, these these painters. It's a huge difference between uh, drawing and painting, and their ability to, to do the draftsmanship is masqueraded by the beautiful way they're able to execute a painting. And uh, so... I, uh, I just think it's really important that, you know, uh, there are so many unbelievable, talented people out there, and everybody's got something different to offer. And if you've got the finances and you've got the time and money, it's, it's really great to go, to go find out firsthand what is it you, that you can get and glean from them. And I pretty much have an attitude about what I think I want to accomplish before I get there. Because I know what their uh, I know what their work looks like, and I I, I want to see how that's accomplished. That's the beauty of uh, the artists that can really produce demos uh, from life. Because uh, it's it just it just helps you build a bigger toolkit. That's why I tell students to come to my workshop. My duty as an instructor is to enlarge their toolkit. And uh, when I go, if I'm going to take the time and do something, uh, you know, that's what I want to do. I want to enlarge my toolkit. And Carolyn and Sherry uh, and Dan Gerhardt and Scott, uh, all of those people that I've studied with, and Donald Putman have been a big influence uh, on what... uh, how I would approach and, and and what I think, and it just even being with uh, David and Sherry uh, when I was in Towson, I got to see Kevin and Wanda. Rebecca and I got to spend an evening uh, with David and Sherry, and uh, David's some of his thinking, which uh, he paints totally different than I do, but some of his thinking and uh, was challenging, and uh, and it's exciting because, like Kevin said, you can either accept or reject, but you've got to be open. Uh, and excited to hear what other people do because it just gives us more ability to author work. And the more options that we have, uh, the more exciting it becomes, and it uh, it breaks off the dead branches. You get pruned, and it's good. You know, it's a good thing. Yeah, I was I was thinking about the protege. Uh, experience I had with, with Kevin last year and I know at the big we were talking earlier about uh artists showing off sometimes when they get in a workshop and one of the advantages or was uh that the workshop lasted for a year. <laughs> so we got could get that uh showing off over with quickly and uh uh Kevin held the bar high so we were working hard and you, you kinda of forgot yourself after a while and just really got into the lessons, opened yourself up. One of the things that I've done uh, recently in corporate in my workshops, the last three workshops, is uh, the first thing that we do on Monday, and it takes about, if you have 20 students, it takes about an hour and 20, hour, 10, 15 minutes. I ask them, why are you here? What is it you think that you want to learn from me, and how can I best uh, serve you? And what I think is really great, it's kind of like uh, there's different ways of disarming the people from uh, Kevin's got his way of 
them uh, going through uh, all the, the things that, like Kevin and I probably did in our early workshops for fear of rejection and, and worried about if other, what other people think. The nice thing about that is uh, all of a sudden in the first hour and 15 minutes, everybody's bonded. Uh, they know a lot more about each other, and then I, as an instructor, get to know what the expectations of each student so I can custom fit that to the student. I think what's amazing is, uh, this, and it's pretty typical, the students come because they like the way that Kevin paints or the way that Sherry paints or the way that Gerhardt's paints or whatever, uh, but what I do in my workshop, it's not so much about the way I paint, it's about what I try to do is to teach the science uh, so that uh, it's like you break them down to square one uh, like the professionals do in basketball. They do it at a college level, they do it at the high school level. Go back to fundamentals. I don't take anything for granted that the students know. I make sure that we work on all of that, and then once... I feel that if you know if, if a student can really have a solid understanding of what he's up against, uh, then they've really got a chance to accelerate their ability to uh, to create work. But so many of them, when they come to the workshops, uh, don't really have a solid understanding of what the science of painting is, and uh, I think it really. It really helps them because that's what I got from Gerhardt's. I certainly got that from Scott's. And then Carolyn's was on a whole different uh, intellectual level. The stuff that she talks about, visual language, and all that stuff was so interesting. Uh, so I know I'm rambling on, but take it over, Kevin. <laughs> uh, Kevin, you were going to make... You're going to make a comment. Go ahead, Kenneth. Yeah, to sum up uh, the workshop approach, I think don't be afraid to make some failures. Um, I think throughout your whole career, I think you know to come up to the next best painting is um, sometimes after the failure. And one of my favorite paintings that I still own was when I was doing it in Ireland. I was painting there for eight weeks. And for whatever reason, I just did the most miserable painting one morning. And I was sitting on a pier ready to jump in and kill myself. And this old boat came in, and um, it just got my juices flowing. And I asked them how long they were going to park there, and they were refueling. And they said one hour, so I hopped on my easel, and I did the best painting of my whole trip. And so that was after the worst painting I did. And then the next painting was the best. So when you go to a workshop, you know, don't be afraid to try different stuff. Don't be trying to show off. And, you know, if you fail, so what? You know, you're there for a week, and if you fail two times a day and come home with miserable product, um, you probably learned a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um. When when we were talking to Sherry, and there was something I either read in her book or on her website, and I won't be able to paraphrase it as eloquently as she wrote it, but she said something like, if an artist's work resonates with you when you're looking at it and you want to go study with them, 
then something already of their philosophy and vision already resides in you somehow, and that that's what is answering. And, and, you know, it's kind of a, I took it as not only a very hopeful thing, like, oh, I really love this artist's work and I want to go study with them, like with you, Kevin, then then maybe there's already that, you know, that um, ability within kind of to, to recognize it and that with work you can you can develop that in yourself. And it's kind of like a, a guidance even of maybe where you need to go next and, and what you need to study next and with who. I think of it as learning, you know, finding your voice and looking for artists, um, C.W. mentioned, you'll see artists of all sorts that will have a similarity to what you think is where you want to head. There's so many artists to choose from. So I use the term that your visual vocabulary. And Uh certain students that I have, for instance, I I might um, say, you know, your work reminds me of John Twatman. You know, take a look at his work and and see how he developed and he studied with the uh went to Germany and studied with libel and painted very dark and then he developed you know into this lighter and lighter and high key approach and very abstract and and towards the end of his career you know he had this very unique voice very unique vocabulary um that he would use in his paintings so, so certain artists have a, a look about them, and you know, even when they don't have the skills, I can say, you know, I think you should look at this person's work. I think this might help you validate your direction in your voice. And as you were saying, you are choosing artists because you are seeing that already. They are creating a poem with color the way that you would write it yourself. And so you might not be attuned and able to do it yet, but you know that's kind of the direction you may want to go. So I, I, I think that's very good um, truthfulness that you saw there. Yeah. yeah. It, it's exciting. Something it's else. inspirational. Uh, something else that uh, I found out uh, with finding that voice, is, uh, which is absolutely paramount otherwise, there's really no reason to paint if you're just going to, uh, co- you know, copy somebody else and live in the, uh, you know, the the coattails of some other artist, famous or not famous, is a really a sad statement. But what I find is that you know people talk about it, then they ask, you know, how how, you know, how does one find the, their voice? And I think the easiest answer to that, and the most truthful one, is that you have to become a painter before you become an artist. You have to understand the, the, your trade, the craft that it is. You have to learn how to copy. And when you're a painter, you learn how to copy value. You learn how to copy shapes. You learn how to copy color. Uh, everything is all uh, that beginning stage of, of understanding what your craft is. And then once you understand that and you've had a good season with learning how to be able to copy shapes, copy value, copy colors, copy the scene, copy whatever, and you've got that ability, then you've got, uh, you can go from the uh, caterpillar to the butterfly 
and and graduate and become an artist and and then uh out of understanding the science and knowing what it takes to to articulate paint and to paint i think your voice will just come out naturally because it's just going to be who you are that's why some people like monet some people don't some people like uh uh titian some people don't uh so, but it's whoever that you know the work that you like will will actually uh, it'll just it'll evolve and happen. But you've got to have the tools to be able to make that happen. And so, the your voice is just naturally who you are. You know, uh, Kevin, when I think of his work and the playfulness of that, and uh, the the impressionistic style that he's got is. It's just his personality, you know, uh, and that's uh, to make yourself vulnerable to an audience. You have to allow yourself to uh, to let people really know, you know, what your personality is, and it'll come out in your work. You know, you'll either be a very literal artist because that's where you're wired, or you'll be one that uh, is wired the way that Kevin and I are, and that doesn't mean that that's that's uh, the right, that just happens to be who we are, and that's the, th- the thing that Kevin, this is why Kevin has a career and I have a career, is because we've been able to let people know this is what my attitude is about a subject or a subject matter, and this is what I do. And, and even though that we might paint a lot of different ways or whatever, it's still going to have that uh, that uniqueness that's going to be unique to Kevin and what's going to be unique to me. Uh, but you have to be skilled. The more skilled that you are, the better off and all the different varieties that you can take with your personality. Sometimes I'm uh, very laid back and very sensitive and very uh, just like my mother. And then other times I'm very aggressive like my father. So I've got both those things in my genes and genetics, and and I can let I can let that happen naturally based on how I relate to a subject, and I think that's the key thing. And you ask yourself when you're going to paint that subject, what is, why am I here? Why am I even looking at? What is it that's turning me on? And then you can find an attitude about that, whatever it is, and then you paint that attitude instead of copying the subject matter. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, I, I want, we only have about 25 minutes left that I've set up for, and I know you two have a painting story or two that you want to tell on each other. So um, I don't know, did you guys flip a coin and decide who was going to go first? Is it you, Kevin? Are you going to tell a CW story? or? I guess I can. I don't know who won the, won the toss, but... Um, uh, and C.W. has a good sense of humor, as I said, and um, I, I've created a lot of programs over uh, my career, and one of the programs I created was in France called Implainer Masters, and I invited um, some great painters and great friends, um, some of which was C.W., Joanne, Arnett and James Asher, Ken Bacchus, uh, to name a few, were some of the first people I chose to come over and join me 
in a 900-year-old castle in France to do some art programs. And I invited the group of them over um, prior to the workshop starting and to just back up a little bit and talk about finding plein air locations, as CW brought up, when you're going to a new location, um, you do have to find, you know, the perfect spot, the perfect time, and a lot of uh, parameters that are necessary, especially for when you're dealing with a lot of students. So I would have groups of students come over, but I literally spent months over in this little village in France, and I found all the locations so that when the students arrived and they joined with their instructor, they didn't have to um, drive around for hours and hours and find a great place and agree on a great place. I already had all these places scouted out. And in doing so, I also met all the um, shopkeepers and the people who made lunches, and I arranged chefs, and I got on properties and private properties to um, have the students have the best experience of this little village in Anglen, Surang, Anglen, what was it? Ang, Suranglang. I can't even remember the name, how to say it. Anglanglang. <laughs> how do you say it, CW? Angla Salongla. Yeah, that's wrong, too, so that's great. But, uh, <laughs> but it was the, one of the most charming villages in France, and it was out of the way. It was in a place that nobody ever heard of, but it was so charming this old castle on top of the the, the hill of the village, um, a village of probably about 300 people, a river ran through it, and it took me a long time to kind of break in and um, get paintings and getting on the different properties and, and get to know the people and get them to trust me, um, which is a big thing. So everything was working great, and the day comes and all my friends arrive and I welcome him to this 900-year-old castle and we have great dinners that our friend Frank the chef made for us and the next day we go to the little village and I show them around and we're sitting in the little center of the town and Josette the gal who made the sandwiches brought out beers and sandwiches for us and CW and Rebecca and Joanne and James Asher and Wanda and I are all sitting there and and we were just relaxing and getting to know and enjoying the beautiful weather. And this lady, this little old lady, is walking up this steep, steep um, um, part of the road up to the center of the town. And she's dragging her old golden retriever with her. And CW has he has a great ability not only with his musical talent and his painting, but he also has great impressions. And he makes the sound of the barking dog. Go ahead, CW. <laughs> so CW is making these barking noises, and this golden retriever goes crazy. <laughs> it starts, and I say, CW, see, you're you're getting the dog all riled up, and the old lady who was the mayor's the mayor's wife that I spent months getting permission. <laughs> all of a sudden is getting dragged up the hill. The dog takes off, and he keeps on doing his part. Go ahead. <laughs> and literally, she's dragging up the street, her skirts up to her eyebrows, her little 
her hose is there getting all scuffed up. She's getting all scraped up. And her knees were bleeding. Her knees were bleeding, and I, we had to go over there and apologize and help her and, and and just say that the dog that was barking behind the um, cafe is gone now. We ran it off. We had to put the story up. And, and so that wasn't the worst thing. He's smoking a cigar. After all this and we coming down, he gets finished with his cigar. He flicks it over the edge. It flies down into one of the fields that they were just raking up. And about two hours later, there is this giant smoke plume coming above the castle ruins. Not only did he scrape up the mayor's wife, he caught the fields on fire. The fire department had to come out. And so it almost ruined the whole relationship that I built. But other than that, we had a great time together. Well, one of the things the audience has to understand is Kevin has the 1090 rule and the 1090 rule is 10%s the truth, 90% baloney and you've got to figure out which is which. So his story is a little bit exaggerated, but I love it because it uh it made us laugh and it's it's funny. He also did something with me uh when I was doing my, uh, we were filming my video for the for the project there, and he got this one uh, person that was a bystander there, uh, just uncontrollably laughing and yelling and screaming while I'm talking about my painting, <laughs> and that was really wonderful. Uh, but the story that I love about Kevin. He told us uh, in uh, Cincinnati they're having an art, a big art show there, and Kevin and Wanda and I were having lunch, and he tells us the story, and I just cracked up. I just thought it was unbelievable. But Kevin's out painting plain air somewhere. Was it somewhere near San Francisco? It was in San Diego, I believe, the one you're going to tell. Oh, in San Diego. And, and he's painting. He sets up, and he's painting this uh, one of those, Old uh, nineteen, you know, nineteen hundred uh, iron bridges, uh, train trestle where a train goes over. So uh, he's painting this thing, and and his painting's really going south, and it's not looking too good, and he's not really happy with it, and and uh, you know he's kind of moaning around. All of a sudden, he kind of notices he hears some voices or something. He turns around and looks. There's about six or seven people behind him, you know, and he's thinking, oh, oh, you know, this is kind of weird. Uh, you know, now I do a painting and it's not looking that great and I got an audience. So <laughs> so he's working on the painting. The painting, you know, actually because the pressure's on, his painting starts looking better and pretty soon he hears these people and they're going, Go for it, man. Go for it. You know, and he, Kevin says, you know, I've painted all over the world, man. I've never had an audience that's cheer. I got a cheering section cheering me on to do a better painting. You know, he just like he just couldn't believe this. So the painting's looking better. And about ten minutes later, all of a sudden he hears this great big like uh, utility truck. But you can hear it coming, getting closer and closer, and he, and it stops about. 30 or 40 feet behind him, he turns around and looks, and it's a fire truck. 
and these people are yelling, "Go for it, man! Go for it!" You know, and and Kevin, all of a sudden, this guy, he's uh, the fireman, gets out of the truck and he's got his hat on and he's got one of those mega horns, and he goes, "Do not jump from the bridge." <laughs> And so Kevin thought they were cheering for him, and these people, of course, it's California. They're telling this guy to, that's getting ready to commit suicide, he's going to jump off the bridge, and they're telling him to go for it. Kevin thought they were cheering him on as a painting. <laughs> <laughs> only, only Kevin, you know. This is a, but this. Oh, it did work for my um, enthusiasm, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did the color painting, the guy didn't commit suicide, and everything was happy. <laughs> well, that's a good one. Okay, well, is there any other stories since you guys are on the on a tear here? Or? <laughs> no, I think that's a good way to sum it up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh. Well, um, Barbara, I'm gonna. Is there anything? One last question or statement that you wanted to ask? Yeah, I just had a question. Um, so, CW, on a previous show, you talked to us about hanging out on the edge, and if we don't hang ourselves out there, then how do we learn? I think that's how you shared it with us. So, I think a lot of what I've gotten out of this show tonight is that learning and exploration go hand in hand. So, we have to be brave enough to experiment risk failure in a painting to keep growing and learning. So if both of you could look back on your paintings, have your most memorable pieces been those that you experimented on and explored and hung yourself out there, CW? Uh, I, I, don't, I, I think the, the people that comment about some of the favorite stuff that I've done it's just uh, it's for all different it just turns out different you know it's like Kevin Kevin thing he painted a, a real dog a scraper and and then the next painting he painted uh, uh, one of the best paintings he did uh, the entire trip I know when I my first trip to France I painted first place I went to was uh, Giverny and I painted in the gardens and I just you know I had uh uh before we left I had ordered twenty thousand dollars worth of frames. We were gonna do eleven thousand dollar video. Uh I was gonna put a two page ad in American Art Review and the painting I did at Giverny was such a dog I couldn't believe it and I said that there's no way I c you know I can't sell this. It's just not happening. Went to home floor, we got our room there painted for my room this scene and it was another dog and I just I remember calling our gallery manager and going we don't know what's going on but man uh, this this is, doesn't look like it's happening and we're really uh, flipped out of course this is like the third day I'm in France you know so we go up to uh, uh, the museum to see uh, 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 Eugene Bodin, who, who was uh, Monet's uh, instructor and, and friend and comrade, and he's the guy that really helped launch Monet's uh, career. We went up to that museum, 
and I saw Baudin's work, and it was so beautiful and so tonal, so inspiring. I went down to the harbor and home floor and painted a killer of great painting for me at that time. It's still a good painting, I think, of one of mine. And from then on, everything that I painted on from France from that moment on uh, was no struggle. It was exciting. And uh, so, you know, you just... You know, you, you you never know how things are gonna. You just got to be willing to go out there and 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 do it. But I, as far as I don't know, I always tell them my next, my favorite painting is hopefully the next one because that's the one I'm working on. So that's why it's my favorite one because I'm excited <laughs> and fired up the work. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Kevin. I think finding inspiration and motivation um, with my prodigy students, as you both are, you know, or all three of you are, you know, I think the, the most important thing for me to teach you is to be self-motivated and, and inspired and finding ways that keep you um, in that spirit of inspiration. And whatever that may be or whatever you need to do to make that happen is the most important thing. So, you know, for me, the upcoming things, I have exciting things on the horizon. Um, I'll be taking a group down the Grand Canyon in May, and we'll paint for 10 days down, uh, floating down the river of the Grand Canyon. And so that has to be inspiring to people. You know, if you've never gone down the Grand Canyon, um, being down in the bottom and Floating on the river is a whole new uh, vision of just very different than viewing it from the top, and it's um, it can be very life changing. So, putting yourself into different experiences that put you in a place of inspiration is going to maybe affect your work, and you might go down, and if whoever's going to be down there with me, painting for ten days. They might come away with um, you know, a dozen terrible paintings, but they're going to come away with something beyond the product. And so when we're actually painting um, and actually doing, creating the product, the process and the product are two different things. So um, you can't really judge one painting and say you're on the right course. And, you know, it's a, it's a long-term project. And so I, I keep a lot of, interesting things on the horizon other than going down the Grand Canyon. Uh, last year I went down and I worked in Guatemala with um, some, I went into some great schools and taught painting to some children who never had that opportunity. And that was really exciting for me and exciting for the students. And uh, this next spring I'm going to be in China and I'm going to work with some migrant workers, children who are very um, um and don't have a lot of money and don't have opportunities for schooling. And so I contacted the school, and I'm going to volunteer to do some teaching over there. And so I find those type of things very rewarding and very different, and who knows what it will lead into the next um, passage of what I'm doing. So I think if you expose yourself to experiences that keep you excited and keep you inspired, it's going to get into your painting, and that's all you can ask. I think that's a, a good summary for 
from from both you and CW. Um, um, hold on one second. All right. So what I'm going to end up doing is is ending the show at this point in time. Um, wanted to thank both uh, you and C- Kevin and CW for coming on, and uh, hope that both of you enjoyed it and. And then uh, what we have coming up next month is a show with David LaFell on November 15th, and that starts at 7 p.m. Eastern as well. So with that, we're going to say goodnight, and um, thank you to both Kevin and to CW. Well, thank you. Thank you, guys. Blanche, Barbara, and Linda, and um, maybe you can see CW and I together again in live performance over at the... American Impression Society in Indianapolis this November 8th, 9th, 10th, and 11th. That's right. Yeah, I'm jealous that you guys are going to get to get together up there. Yeah. Yeah, Kevin and I get it good. We get to do a demo together. That ought to be a piece of work. (laughs) (laughs) You're not going to be on the same canvas, right? We we might. We might. Wow, I think that'd be kind of cool. I think it would be fun. That's going to be great. Uh, but thank you for the opportunity to do this. And it's always great uh, to be included in anything that Kevin's uh, a part of. And Rebecca and I talk about that trip that they invited us to, the in-plane air masters in Europe. And that we've done some incredible things. Uh, uh, in in our career, but that's got to be at the top of the list. One of the probably one of the most meaningful and fun things that we've ever done, and it was it was because of Kevin and Wanda's graciousness to invite us there. And we we talk about that trip all the time. We have just some of the greatest memories. And my students that came there, uh, they all talk about that. They all want to go back to Hong and. And uh, and we might have to do that, Kevin. We might have to make another trip back there. Sounds great. Thank you very much, everybody. Good night. Thank you. Thank you. Good night, everyone, and we'll see you on November 15th at 7. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.